0: Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all
1: kinds of religious issues and topics. All right, we are back on the air. Thank you for listening. This is Terry Hutchinson. Your, one of your co-hosts, and I'm on the air with John Gee and uh, Kevin Christensen. Good evening, John. Good evening, Kevin. Good evening. Good evening. And we have a new format here for you on Interpreter Radio, and that's going to be we are going to um, have four segments of the program. The first will be Come Follow Me. We will be doing... Uh, the lesson from January 16th through the 22nd, which is the first chapter of John. We have found the Messiah for the first block. The second block, we'll be doing uh, answering my gospel questions from the Institute Manual. And then after the news break for the second hour, we're going to be doing a 30-minute segment on restoration advocacy, where we'll be dealing with archaeology, North America, and Mesoamerica. And then the last half hour, we're going to have a special guest. It's F's Kent Brown, which who is the author of a new volume in the BYU New Testament commentary series. It's the Epistle to the Ephesians. Now, Kent is also the author of a, one volume that came out about seven or eight years ago called The Testimony of Luke.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: And so we're really excited to have Kent on with us for that last half hour. But we're going to begin by thanking our primary sponsor, which is the Interpreter Foundation. And I would just give you a brief note. The Interpreter Foundation is a 50C3 corporation, which means any donation that you make to it is tax deductible. And you'll be able to see where your money goes and what it's going for. The Interpreter Foundation has some great projects. Uh, They did the Witnesses film. They've got a few film projects going. They've got book projects, article projects, conferences. They did a Book of Moses. Uh, excuse me, a temple conference uh, last month. And then every week they put an article in your email if you subscribe to it, a free one, that is a peer reviewed article on some gospel topic. The mission of the Interpreter Foundation is to support the doctrines and practices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, although we are an independent entity. And everyone that works for the Interpreter Foundation, minus a couple of the technical skills that we need, is a uh, total volunteer. And so tonight, we're going to uh, begin with our Come Follow Me lesson. And uh, you know, the, the manual talks about we have found the Messiah. And this first chapter of John is, the, is I guess, the prologue. At least the first part of the first chapter is the prologue to Jesus's life.
2: Yes, and um, and there's been a lot of discussion and ink spilled over the the prologue. Um, that also, the second part of the chapter deals with uh, deals with the testimony of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus and how. Talks about him, his encounters with some of his first disciples.
1: Now, each of the three of us have, you know, we have varying areas of expertise, and we'll introduce that to you during the various blocks this evening. But Kevin uh, has a particular interest in this prologue for the chapter of of John, the first chapter of John. So, Kevin, would you like to introduce that for our audience? (laughs)
0: Uh, Sure. Well, this actually relates to how D&C 93 kind of relates to this. And in D&C 93, since this is John talking about stuff, and we have this revelation to Joseph Smith in the 93rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants, where uh, we've quoted a lot for other things, but there's this really interesting statement. Let's see. Let me get to my... Here we go. He says, uh, <clears throat> this is a revelation given to Joseph Smith in Kirtland in Ohio, 1833, in in May. And then he uh, says, starts quoting John, where he says, And I, John, bear record of that glory is the glory of the <clears throat> only begotten uh, of the Father, full of grace and truth, even the Spirit of truth, which came and dwelt in flesh among us. And I, John, saw that he received not of the fullness at first, but received grace for grace. And he received not of the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received the fullness. And thus he was called the Son of God, because he received not of the fullness at first. And I, John, bear record that, lo, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove, and sat upon him. And there came a voice out of heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son. And I, John, bear record that he received the fullness of the glory of the Father, and he received all power, both in heaven and on earth, and the glory of the Father was with him, for he dwelt in him. And it shall come to pass that if you are faithful, you shall receive the fullness of the record of John. And I give unto you these things that you may understand and know how to worship and know what you worship, that you may come into the Father in my name and in due time receive of his fullness. And if you keep my commandments and receive of his fullness, you shall be gloried in me as, as I am in the Father. And therefore I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. So it, it goes on like that. But, but it's, it's tying this that, that Jesus fully didn't have this full awareness of what he was and what he was supposed to do until he was baptized. And uh, let's say, I've been one of the things that has come out of my study of Margaret Barker's work is that she uh, wrote a book called *The Risen Lord*, in which she made the case that uh, this is a quote from her book. Uh, on her on page uh, twenty-seven of her book, she says. All the Gospels agree that the baptism of Jesus marked the beginning of his ministry. I want to explore the possibility that for Jesus, this was the moment in which he became Son of God, in the sense of becoming fully aware of, of who he was and, and what he was supposed to do. His baptism was a mark of a you know, chariot descent experience, where he believed he had become the Heavenly High Priest, Lord of his people. And indeed, she argues that that this uh, was when Jesus received the revelation described in the book of Revelations, the first line of which is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his disciples and this is the, you know, the vision of the Lamb ascending to the throne and they're saying who's who is worthy to read the book and he reads the book and then he takes the throne and there's worship by the beast and the angels. She knows that Mark describes after Jesus is baptized he goes off to be with the beast and the angels and that's, <laughs> that's the place in the scriptures where you have them both together. So it's this unexpected tying together of two very, very different sources of investigation based on, you know, the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Joseph Smith translation coming through Joseph Smith with one set of resources and the inspiration that they received. And then the other uh, coming from a uh, very different source, drawing on on a very different set of resources, but yet coming to the same point. So I think this is something very, very interesting for us.
1: So, Kevin, how does this lead us to recognize the Savior?
0: Well, I think there's there's that it's where he recognizes himself, and then he then he starts to show his disciples who he is. You know, you know there's this there's this uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. That's when uh, you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John they really see him as as he is. You know, they you know, they see beyond you know the flesh that looks and walks and talks, you know, to a a degree like us and to other degrees doing things and understanding things that we couldn't and are very impressed with, but then the sense that they saw him transfigured and to see him transfigured, they too had to be transfigured to a degree in order to receive as much as they were able to. And a similar thing happens in Third Nephi. So, and uh, I think when Joseph Smith talks about... um, having calling you're calling an election made sure sorts of things. That's you know, involves us being transfigured in order to you know we have to become like him to fully understand him. And this is the invitation that we all have to do is we have to you know it's preparation and seeking and uh but first of all, you know, the first step on the track is, is thinking is Jesus is making some remarkable claims. And John in, in the prologue to John in this first chapter is making some remarkable claims, and so that, it's an invitation for us to to really understand, you know, to think about, to ponder, to search, ponder, and pray about what it is that we're being invited to explore here. And uh, so with that, then, you know, John, instead of just saying, you know, taking us back to uh, Bethlehem or Nazareth, takes us back to the beginning, which is, I think, it's very remarkable, and it gives us a sense of the kind of uh, awesome perspective that John wants us to to think about when we approach the claims and the testimonies in the scriptures and in you know the New Testament, in the Old Testament, in in the LDS scriptures, and from all these uh, all these testimonies and what we ourselves can feel from the Spirit.
1: You know, I really appreciate what you said about the. Doctrine and Covenants, especially that 93rd section, because it does take us right back to the pre-existence. I mean, you know, the the very first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it talks about the creating power of God. And that's something that I think um, a lot of scholars I don't know if they've just, John, I don't know if they've not recognized it to date or if they're just beginning to recognize it. For example, a new book hit my desk. i am um, be reviewing it on my program in St. George in a week or so called The Gospel and the Gospels. It's by Simon Gathercole. Now, Simon Gathercole is a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Cambridge, and he wrote a book a few years ago called The Preexistent Son, which talks about this pre-existence uh, of Jesus, so to speak, and recognizing him. And one of the things he, he talks about in John in particular, he says there's two facets of John's Christology that are not given equal treatment. Uh, one of them is, the, is in the prologue, and after John chapter 1, verse 14, the word that they use here disappears. And the only begotten Son appears only twice later. However, during the book of John itself, they use messianic language to describe Jesus 21 times. So it's a... a, common theme. And that's something else that uh, was noted in one of the Enoch seminars, where uh, I several years ago they did an Enoch seminar, which is a gathering of scholars all around the world um, for Second Temple studies, but particularly on Enoch. And the theme of it was John the Jew. And so in other words, they're reading the Gospel of John as in a Jewish context to talk about his being the messiah and one of the presentations the papers really got my attention it's by adele reinhart's and it's called and the word was god john's christology and jesus's discourse in jewish context and essentially what it says is that there are titles which people use throughout the book of john to refer to jesus one of them is the lamb of god john the baptist uses that one one of them is king Pilate himself uses that, and they put it on Jesus' cross over the objection of the Jews. And the other one is prophet, and then there's the Messiah. But these are the terms that Jesus used to refer to himself. Son of man, son of God, the Father's son. And then they talk about how by referring to Jesus as the word, what they're really doing is they are making a connection of Jesus as divine. Now, there's, you know, some kinds of of, uh, I guess you would say, question in the minds of some scholars about whether Jesus himself taught that he was divine, whether when this came about. Some of them talk about it fairly early, like Larry Hurtado and Richard Bauckham, and others talk about it coming later, uh, that it was something that grew on the Christians. I personally believe that Jesus talked about himself in a divine capacity right out of the gate. And the book of John in particular emphasizes that, especially when he says, you know, I am come from the Father. And in a sense, the end of uh, Reinhardt's article, let me give you this quote. The role of the voice points to the importance of the words. There is therefore a cluster of terms that are integrally integrally related. Signs, words, eternal life, and Jesus's Christological identity as the Son of God. This cluster suggests that the gospel of John itself, as witness to and record of some of Jesus's signs, is the means through which the gospel's audience hear the voice of the Son of God, and in doing so, they attain eternal life. In other words, Through the word, the worlds were created. And this is something that John talks about. Right at the beginning of this lesson, the question of us is asked in the manual. Have you ever wondered whether you would have recognized Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God? I love the way that in the end of this first chapter, he runs across Andrew, he, who, who says to Peter, hey, come and see, this is the Messiah. And then Nathaniel does the same. They recognize him. The common people recognized him. And this is a theme, Kevin, that you and I have talked about in your work on Margaret Barker and others, and, and it's a way that Margaret got me to read the New Testament in the first place, which was essentially looking for the signs that Jesus gave which caused the common people and the majority of the people to recognize him as the Son of God, not just the miracles. So those are some factors that have struck me in this chapter. And then, John, you had something that you wanted to bring up that ties in with the Joseph Smith Translation because we have major portions of this chapter in particular. In fact, the first 34 verses, almost all of them are distinguished by their use in the Joseph Smith Translation.
2: Yes, Um, if you look at the – and this will be uh, perhaps a little bit uh, challenging to convey this over the radio. Uh, But if you look at the – you look at one of the problematic verses in John chapter 1, and that would be verse 18. And the King James has it. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Uh, the Joseph Smith translation gives that differently. Um, and saying, No man hath seen it God at any time unless he hath borne record of the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. So if we look at the manuscripts of the New Testament at that point, There are a number of changes that have occurred over time, and particularly if we compare the 2nd century Christian authors who quote it with the manuscripts which, um, for this portion of John, come in at the beginning of the 3rd century. And the, the manuscripts, so there are a couple of issues here. One of them is... A number of the 3rd century manuscripts, instead of saying the only begotten Son of God, have the only begotten God. Uh, but, the, but the quotations have half of it, uh, them reading the only begotten Son and God or the only begotten God or no, the only begotten Son. So they actually support reading Son there. Only Begotten God is probably influenced by some of the Gnostics who took the term Only Begotten as a reference to um, a particular emanation of God that uh, they believed. uh, So they they have a very strange, or to us, strange way of, of imagining how God created the world and in the process, he produces an emanation of himself, which he calls the Only Begotten, uh, who then emanates other things, and it, uh, and then the world is created by them. It's not a biblical uh, cosmology or account of the creation of the world, uh, but they have, they've tampered with it and changed it from Only Begotten Son of God to Only Begotten God. So that's the first change. Then after Nicaea, they change this again and to only begotten son and drop son of God altogether. That's one of the changes. The other one is um, that the unless which shows up in the Joseph Smith translation also shows up in all of the Irenaeus' quotations of this. No one has seen God at any time unless and uh, the the difference here between Irenaeus and the Joseph Smith translation is which case you put in uh, the only begotten son of God and the Joseph Smith translation actually makes better sense of the Greek than um, Irenaeus does uh, so there are changes in the text and the textual variants that indicate that the the reading that appears in the Joseph Smith translation there is probably the original now it's popular these days to claim that there's nothing restored in the Joseph Smith translation or that it's not really a translation uh, but this is one place where there's clearly it, it clearly matches up with the earliest quotations of this particular passage, mm-hmm. and earlier than any of the earlier manuscripts we have at, for this passage, that the Joseph Smith translation is closer to the earliest witnesses than uh, the current reading.
1: Well, and I think some of the Gnostic Gospels, for example, the Gospel of Philip, they do use the Gospel of John in particular quite a bit. And I think as you've pointed out in other work, and you know, we we cited that in a in the book that we did and talked about here a couple of months ago, um, that you have to evaluate those Gnostic documents because they have elements which are very positive. In fact Kent Brown, who's going to be with us, wrote an article about it in the ensign. But on the other hand in the long run, you also have to evaluate them and how they deal with the first principles and ordinances of the gospel, and many of them not well.
2: Not well, and, and also you can – it's worth noting um, they apostatized in different directions. So in some cases, they may preserve something that was in – had among the first Christians that the Orthodox rejected, but they also import a lot of other things that mm-hmm. – Uh, the Orthodox had the good sense not to import.
1: Well, and Irenaeus, a lot of what we have from them and had from them for a long time was simply the fact that Irenaeus had put them on this list of heretics.
2: So you have Irenaeus, and then later uh, Epiphanius' Panarion. And so you have these different viewpoints there. But what's interesting is you can see in the main... Greek manuscripts, some traces of the Gnostics, and then traces after Nicaea where they f- tried to fix all the the teachings in, in this particular passage to match the Orthodoxy. What's interesting is for both the Gnostics and the Orthodox, uh, it discounted the whole idea of seeing God. And so where – mm-hmm. John is originally testifying that nobody's seen God unless he's testified of him and testified of the Son. And then this is adjusted slightly to make it sound like no one can ever
1: see God. So, Kevin, you mentioned that Margaret Barker talked about this in The Risen Lord. And she does address it a bit in The Revelation, that book that she wrote. But she did a full commentary on the Book of John. Tell us a little bit about oh, yeah. that in the last couple of minutes that we have.
0: Oh um, well, just uh, it's interesting. I was just uh, looking at it. She spends uh, even before starting into the into John, she starts with a few chapters, just kind of establishing her background and, and distinguishing between those that were. Uh, the ones that came back from the exile and had the Deuteronomist tradition, where they were saying that no, you don't see God, because there's there's the you know the version of the uh, in Deuteronomy where, it's, where it says that Moses didn't see God, compared to the version in uh, in Exodus where Moses and seventy elders of Israel saw God face to face. So she points out lots of places where there's a visible tension in the scriptures about whether or not a person could see God, and then. Uh, in the, in the essay that I did with her, uh, that was the theme, was, you know, seeking the face of the Lord, that there was a tradition of, you know, people going into the temple and seeing God face to face in a in a revelation, you know, being transfigured themselves so that they could do that. And she points out several places where the Hebrew is pointed away from that concept so that, you know, you can read the same characters in many places in the Psalms, uh, that if you just Read the same characters and point them differently. You know, breathing into, since you've got continents, you're breathing in the vowels, you breathe in, <laughs> if you've got the spirit, you can breathe in places where they see it. And so she's, she's wanting to, to set us up toward approaching John, I think, more from the way that, you know, that, that, you know, that John was just talking about just now. That, that, you know, that the idea that there's been different readers and editors and we want, if we want to get back to what they're really talking about, we have to prepare our minds. You know that, that that's the thing Jesus says in 3 Nephi. You, you know you can't get it all at once. You have to prepare your minds for tomorrow. You know, you have to read, study, and pray to get your our own mental eyes open so that we can approach this text in a, in such a way that we can get out more of it. You know, and we're not going to get it all at once. But each time, if we prepare ourselves, we can get more out of it and more out of it. And to be able to see just who we're being introduced here by John and what this language is implying, uh, and that. In the business, they're saying, "Of of Jesus, all things were made by him, and without anything was not anything made that was made." That's that's an amazingly bold statement to say about someone that they you know basically grew up with.
1: <laughs> okay, and thank it, you, Kevin. Yeah. All right, and one thank you, John and Kevin.